0: Today, we are going to start out with a simple truth. We Catholics get close to people. We get close to people. We form deep, intimate bonds with our parents, with our siblings, with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, with all those we love. Last weekend, I was at my grandson's baptism, tiny little guy named William Peter a month old. Now, I'm not super sentimental. I'm not one to just burst into intense emotion at the drop of a hat, but holding him and talking to him, I could feel this intimate bond developing. He's he's really growing on me. He's my first grandchild, my grandson, William Peter. And you know, I told myself I wasn't gonna be one of those fawning grandfathers that shows the pictures around everyone and prattles on about his grandchildren. But here I am, bringing it up in a podcast episode. I love that little guy. I really do. And I'm surprised at how quickly that all developed. We form deep, intimate bonds with people. And that's a great privilege. That's a great honor. That's a sacred thing. On October 29th, 2017, before his Angelus prayer, Pope Francis said this, quote, Indeed, we were created to love and to be loved. God, who is love, created us to make us participants in his life, to be loved by him and to love him, and with him to love all other people. This is God's dream for mankind. End quote. God's dream for mankind that we be in these deep, loving relationships with God, with each other. But in this life, there's a difficult side to that. There's a catch. And that catch is the realities that entered the world with original sin. Inevitably, We're going to lose some of these bonds, some of these connections, some of this intimacy. In our fallen world, these relational connections are not permanent. They're temporary. Parents die. We experience romantic breakups. There may be even divorces, right? Estrangements, ties being cut. We experience the loss of loved ones. Jandy Nelson succinctly sums up this mystery when she writes, Grief and love are conjoined. You don't get one without the other. And I wanted to just bring to you a couple of poems to set the tone for this podcast episode. This first one by Kelly Roper called My Constant Companion. Grief is my companion, it takes me by the hand, and walks along beside me, in a dark and barren land, how long will this lonesome journey last, how much more can my weary heart bear, since your death I've been lost in the fog, too burdened with sorrow and care, people tell me my sadness will fade, and my tears will reach their end. Grief and I must complete our journey. And then, maybe, I'll find happiness again. This poem by Denise Levertov Called Talking to Grief Ah, grief, I should not treat you like a homeless dog who comes to the back door for a crust, for a meatless bone. I should trust you. I should coax you into the house and give you your own corner, a worn mat to lie on, your own water dish. You think I don't know you've been living under my porch. You long for a real place to be readied before winter comes. You need your name, your collar and tag, you need the right to warn off intruders to consider my house your own and me your person and yourself these poems capture how we need to go beyond tolerating grief beyond grudgingly accepting the existence of grief from merely acknowledging the reality of grief, to embracing grief, to welcoming it, to approaching it willingly, embracing it voluntarily. And why? E.A. Bucurinieri tells us in this quote, So it's true, when all is said and done, grief is the price we pay for love. End quote. And we pay that price. We pay the price of love on a sliding fee scale. As Orson Scott Card tells us, quote, life is full of grief to exactly the degree we allow ourselves to love other people, end quote. So the degree to which we love, that's the degree to which we can expect grief. Grief. After five episodes on suicide, grief seemed like the next topic to to address. So stay tuned with me as we go into a deep investigation of the poorly understood world of grief. Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. I am so glad you are here with me for these moments together. Thank you for spending the time. As you know, I'm Dr. Peter Melinowski, clinical psychologist and passionate Catholic. You are listening to the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast where we don't hesitate to take on the tough topics that matter to you. We bring the best of psychology and human formation and harmonize it with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, that brings the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and the rest of the English-speaking world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Today's episode, number 81, is entitled... Grieving is the price we pay for loving, and it's released on August 16th, 2021. We are broaching this big topic of grief. We touched on it briefly, way back in episode 17, but now we're getting into it in much more detail. Why? Well, there is so much misinformation out there about grief, so many myths, so many misconceptions to clear up. Why is that? Well, we're going to answer that question with the professional research, the best of psychological theory, with scripture, with poetry, with examples and with quotes to help you understand the experience of grief, your grief and the grief of those whom you love. And why should we learn about grief, Dr. Peter? Why, you ask, should we learn about grief? Well, Earl Grohlman sums it up like this, quote, Grief is not a disorder, a disease or a sign of weakness. It is an emotional, physical and spiritual necessity, the price you pay for love. The only cure for grief is to grieve." End quote. Bottom line here, if you love, you're going to grieve. If we love, we're going to grieve part of loving well is grieving well. And the flip side, if we flee from grief, we're going to flee from love. You can't love without eventually grieving. And parts of us know this. Those who will not grieve, those will not love. We're going to be drawn away from loving if we can't handle the grieving. And our Lord modeled this for us. We go way back to the prophecies of Isaiah back in chapter 53, verse 3. He's describing the Son of Man. He's describing our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. What does Isaiah say about him? Quote, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. End quote. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That we go back thousands and thousands of years, the description of Christ before he was born. John 11, verses 32 to 36. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the story of Lazarus, right? And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. End quote. We have Jesus loving Lazarus, one of his favorite people when he walked the face of the earth. Jesus was a guest frequently in Lazarus's house. He missed him. He loved him. He was deeply moved in spirit. He was troubled. He wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him, because they saw the grief in our Lord. Grief and love are conjoined. We're not going to be able to separate them this side of the eschaton. We are going to have to be able to grieve. And Our Lady, she modeled this for us too. Mary at Calvary, looking up at her beloved son, innocent, Yet accused, mocked, reviled, slapped, spit upon, beaten, whipped, crowned with thorns, forced on a death march, nailed to a cross, bleeding and dying. All his disciples, save John, abandoned him, the people turned against him, flesh of her flesh, bone of her bone. But yet also Almighty God, the second person of the Trinity, love incarnate, going through the agony of his passion. And so much of the agony of his passion was his grief. His grief for and about those whom he loved. And what was Our Lady's experience? I can hear her asking, in the words of the Good Friday reproaches, my people, my people, what has he done to you how has Jesus offended you? Answer me." Alice von Hildebrand, she says, quote, "We gain a dolorous awareness that being as weak as we are, we cannot guard the loved one hard as we try." We realize that this precious being is infinitely fragile. This is inevitably a source of profound suffering. The loved being whose beauty has wounded our heart is frailty itself. And we realize that ardently as we wish to, we are ourselves too weak and too helpless to shelter him in this threatening and treacherous world where dangers are constantly lurking, end quote. That's why we need to learn to grieve well. We need to be able to understand something about grief and to grieve well in order to pick up our crosses, to bear our sufferings well, the suffering that is essential to loving in this earthly life, in this fallen world. We are going to love and we're going to lose our loved ones that is a reality. I'm going to experience it. You're going to experience it if you haven't already. So I'm taking this risk. I'm taking a risk in loving my grandson, William Peter. I I could lose him in any number of ways. I've taken a great risk in loving my wife, Pam. We've playfully argued about who gets to die first so as to avoid the pain of the loss of our relationship. Yes, there's the communion of saints. Yes, there's eternal life. But still, one of us, either Pam or me, is going to have to live on in this life first without the other one present in the same way. So, let's talk about models of grief. Models of grief. So, the most famous one, and we discussed this in episode 17, is from the Swiss psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She published this model in her book, Death and Dying, in 1969. And we're going to go into more detail today. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when she was a psychiatric resident, so she was very early in her career, she gathered all kinds of anecdotal evidence from more than 200 terminally, terminally ill patients as they were dying in the hospital. And she came up with this anecdotal model called the DABDA model. And the DABDA model, D-A-B-D-A, is an acronym, and it stands for Denial, Anger, Bargaining, Depression, and Acceptance. Those are the five elements of her model. She said that denial is the first of the five stages of grief because it helps us to survive the loss. It happens initially. The denial, the shock, they help us cope. They make day-to-day survival possible. Denial helps us to pace our experience of grief So it's nature's way of letting in only as much as we can handle. It's a way to titrate that grief until we can kind of begin to process that more readily. So that shock and belief. Then the anger, which comes from a deep sense of injustice, of being wronged, of being violated, of having our loved ones stolen from us. And underneath the anger is pain. And then there's this bargaining, right? The frantic attempts to control outcomes. And then the depression, feeling the loss. Mandy Hale said, quote, you can't truly heal from a loss until you allow yourself to really feel the loss, end quote. And then there's the acceptance, the accepting of the reality of the loss. If you want to know more about these, you can go back to episode 17. I just want to give you the the, the bare outline here, but denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The DABDA model. Round about that time, only three years later, Colin Parks, he published a book called Bereavement, Studies of Grief in Adult Life. He argued that the bereaved must go through four overlapping phases of grief in order to adequately resolve the grief. And that is, number one, shock and numbness. Number two, yearning and searching number three disorganization and despair number four reorganization and recovery all right so let's start with shock and numbness that's the first one that's that sense of this can't be happening this cannot be happening struggling with comprehension numbing out again this is this helps us to survive emotionally corresponds to the denial phase in the Kubler ross model and Christopher Moore described this in a really succinct way when he said, quote, There's a fine edge to new grief. It severs nerves, it disconnects reality. There's mercy in a sharp blade. Only with time, as the edge wears, does the real ache begin. End quote. So shock. And numbness. That's the first phase in Colin Park's model of bereavement. Second phase: yearning and searching. This is actually a little different than Elizabeth Kubler Ross. This is where there is this desire for things to go back to the way they were. We're missing the person, but we're also seeking the person out. How can we be close again? There's this wishing the deceased would come home. Sometimes the fantasy, sometimes the delusion that the person will just come home. This is filled with weeping, pining, sadness, anger, and confusion. Come back, we say. Come back. Fill the emptiness. The, the idea that the person could just come back. The yearning and the searching. And that sense of yearning and searching, captured in this poem by Zeb Eddington, published in November 2018. I lie awake long into the night, hoping that maybe you just might give me a call to say you're okay and let me know you made it through the day. I would give everything that I have to make you feel not so sad. I know the pain is sometimes too great, but the love was something you could never mistake. I long for the day when I see you again, then we can talk about where all we've been. We can think about the times we've had, how we've missed each other ever so bad. I feel like I've been cheated and robbed so blind. God took you away when I thought you were mine, now I'm stuck here and feel so alone as I sit and wait right beside the phone. You gave me a life and everything I have. I couldn't say no, even when I was mad, you gave me my children that I hold so dear. You took away everything that I ever feared as the hurt seems to fade, but the memories are bright. Maybe I'll see you in a dream tonight. That's all I can hope for until the day when we're together in heaven for an eternity. Searching and yearning, yearning and searching. That's the second of Park's four stages of grief. The third one, disorganization, and despair. In this phase, people are easily distracted. There's difficulty with concentration and attention. There's an acceptance now. He's not coming back. He really is dead. Uh, The depression may set in. Anxiety may set in. Possibly apathy. Possibly anger. Rebellion against the loss. Withdrawal from others. Maybe disengaging from activities. A sense of isolation. But there's no longer a searching. The yearning gives way to these other experiences, apathy, anger, maybe a loss of hope, lots of questioning of the meaning and purpose of life and death. And that's the third phase, disorganization and despair. And the fourth phase, according to Park in his 1972 book, is reorganization and recovery. And this involves the growing realization that life can go on, that we can rebuild, that things can be renewed. We can begin again. Energy levels lift. Concentration and attention improve. And there's an ability to enjoy good things again. Positive memories of the person. There's some kind of new normal that comes in. So I've given you two of the most influential stage or phase models, but there's been a number of criticisms of them. Now, the first was that they weren't really grounded in empirical studies. This wasn't coming from the kind of research that was done subsequently. Rather, it was really about uh, anecdotal observations. It was just, let's see what's going on here. And especially Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model was misused. She originally based her model on those who were dying, not those whose loved ones were dying. So it's not as relevant to much of what it got applied to later. There were all kinds of situations to which her model was overgeneralized. Also, clinicians were starting to notice that, hey, uh, these stages, They don't always go in order with people that are going through grief, right? So, clinical observations were starting to suggest, hey, this may not be as tidy and pat as it was presented. It's not a lockstep process. And there was a danger that these stages or these phases would be taken as some sort of proscriptive model. Models can be either proscriptive or descriptive. In a descriptive model, the model merely describes what is going on in a proscriptive model the model predicts what happens or what should happen and gives direction for how to bring it about so there was some danger where grief counselors and also lay people who had been who had been impressed with these stage models would start to push for the person to move on to the next phase In other words, would become in some ways pressuring or even critical of the experience of people saying, hey, you've got to get to the anger. You've got to feel the anger, you know, after the initial denial wears off or you've got to enter into the depression in some sort of very prescribed way. And that's actually not not necessarily how everybody goes through it. So later on, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote that, quote, the five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance are part of the framework that makes up our learning to live with the one we lost. They are tools to help us frame and identify what we may be feeling, but they are not stops on some linear timeline in grief, end quote. Well, starting in the early 80s, Clinicians and researchers started to see, okay, does this really stand up to empirical observation? If we start doing research studies, are we going to see the progression through the stage models? Are we going to see the progression through phase models that was becoming so entrenched in popular culture due to the popularization of especially Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work, but also to some degree to Park's work? So, Carol Barrett and Karen Shewis, in a 1981 ar- article in Omega, which is the Journal of Death and Dying, did some interviews, did some research with 193 widows and widowers in Wichita, Kansas. All were 62 years of age or older, and they did not find that there was a stage process of adaptation to grief. The actual data coming in in this study, one of the earliest ones, did not conform to the predicted model of moving through the stages of grief in that order. Later on, in 20 years later, in a 2002 Journal of Personality and Social Psychology article by George Bonanno and his colleagues, they they track the trajectories of grieving the death of a spouse from before the spouse died and then six and 18 months after the death this that's what's really unique about this study is that it actually started the whole process before the spouse died and then tracked it six and 18 months after death at 205 participants and there were again very low levels of correspondence with trajectories of grief going through the stages described by kubler ross or by parks finally in 2007 in a study in jama which is the journal of the american medical association by Paul Majewski and his colleagues. They set out to examine the relative magnitudes and patterns of change over time, post-loss, for five grief indicators. Again, they're looking at this stage theory of grief. They're looking at disbelief, yearning, anger, depression, and acceptance of death. They interviewed 233 bereaved individuals in Bridgeport and Fairfield, Connecticut. They measured them on these five items anywhere from one month to 24 months after their loss. And again, it did not fit the stage model at all. In fact, acceptance was always higher than all the other ones across all time interviews. Even from one month post loss, acceptance was the highest. So, it did not fit this again popular idea of what the pattern was. So why did these stage models, when they were inaccurate in significant ways, why, after 50 years, are they still with us? Why have they endured relatively unchanged in the minds of so many people, especially 40 years after the first research came out to suggest that they weren't accurate, at least in the progressions? Well, first of all, I'm going to say there was a huge need. When Elizabeth Kubler Ross was in that hospital watching people die, watching what they were going through, she was struck by how little care and attention was paid to that whole grieving process. People needed something to hang on to, something to help them make sense out of the overwhelming experience of loss and grief. That's what I think really drove this, and especially Elizabeth Kubler Ross's model. That's really simple. It's really easy to understand. You know, DABDA, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, something really catchy. She's got a nice acronym. These models are intuitive. They seem to make sense. And even more importantly, these stage and phase models, they gave us a language, a way to symbolize the experience of grief into words so that we could make sense of it, so that we could Think about it so we wouldn't just be overwhelmed by an intense emotional experience. And this is really a gift. So these stage models, as imperfect as they were, they really helped us to be able to share, to communicate about grief more clearly, more readily, for us to be able to be in relationship with others about our grief. It gave us a vocabulary that was common. So, one thing that the research on the trajectories of grief, how people go through a grieving process, one thing that it showed us was summed up so well by Roland Barthes, who said, begin quote, each of us has his own rhythm of suffering, end quote. And Sam Shepard, he said this, grief is a bizarre territory because there's no predicting how long it'll take to get over certain things. You just don't know how long it's going to resound in your life. End quote. And Megan O'Rourke, she said this, quote, I wasn't prepared for the fact that grief is so unpredictable. It wasn't just sadness and it wasn't linear. Somehow I thought that the first days would be the worst and then it would get steadily better, like getting over the flu. That's not how it was. End quote so, in response to this, in recognition of the data, some clinicians and some organizations have moved away from using the stages of the phases of grief, and they have gone to discussing the signs or the signals of grief instead. So I'm going to share those with you. I'm pulling from four major sources. The first was a 2017 online article by Crossroads Hospice and Palliative Care. Another was an article by the Mayo Clinic. A third was from the Vitas Healthcare website. And the fourth was from helpguide.com, where there was an article on coping with grief and loss that I really thought was good. And so there's different categories that signs and signals of grief can fall into, and This was really laid out in that Crossroads Hospice and Palliative Care website. There are categories of emotion, cognitive reactions, that's the way that grief impacts our thinking, physical reactions, that is our bodily reactions in grief, and then also our spiritual reactions and our behavioral reactions. And they also include our social interactions that are impacted by grief in this list so emotional reactions cognitive reactions physical reactions spiritual reactions and behavioral reactions i'm going to go through sort of this aggregation of these signs all right so let's start with the emotional ones right agitation like inability to relax anger anhedonia anhedonia is the inability to enjoy things to experience pleasure anxiety apathy, just where things don't seem important anymore, not caring what happens. It can be this real sense of betrayal, right? Feeling that someone actually chose to hurt you in the loss, right? And that that could be a very real aspect of things like the romantic breakup or divorce. Bitterness about the loss, despair, disbelief, right? Trouble accepting that the loss really happened. This emptiness inside, this feeling that there was a void, with nothing to give or nothing inside anymore. And that was really captured by a quote from Jojo Moyes, who said, quote, Losing him was like having a hole shot straight through me, a painful constant reminder, an absence I could never fill, End quote. You get that sense of the emptiness inside in that quote. Fear, guilt, helplessness, feeling that there's nothing one can do to make a difference in the situation, impatience, isolation, loneliness, numbness, powerlessness. Some people have a sense of relief that there's been a loss, especially if there's been a long terminal illness, right? Or uh, a really contentious relationship that's come to an end in one way or another. You can also be guilt about that relief, sadness, shame, shock. Sometimes there's thankfulness, appreciation for the good in the relationship. It can be uncertainty though, uselessness, weakness. So, those are all elements, those are all possibilities that someone might experience emotionally when having a grief response. What about cognitive reactions? It's a great quote by George R.R. Martin in which he said, Grief can derange even the strongest and most disciplined of minds. I really like that quote. And then I found out that it echoed something that was said thousands of years ago by the Greek philosopher Sophocles. Sophocles put it even more succinctly when he said, Quote, Grief teaches the steadiest minds to waver, end quote. So one of the most prominent cognitive reactions to grief is difficulties in concentrating, difficulties with concentration and intention. And this was really captured by this very recent poem just published a few months ago by Liz Newman, when she says this, Grief stacks itself up up, up, as you try and balance your daily tasks, your emotions, your pain, the tower wobbles, as you try to do everything you normally do, everything you normally can, but right now you can't, and it comes all the way down. When we are grieving, we don't have the same cognitive capacity as we had before. We might be continuously thinking about the loss, ruminating. We might have this narrow focus where it seems like we can only think about the loss. We have difficulty thinking about anything else, difficulty making decisions, pessimism about the future. Shakespeare brought this up in the final line of his 50th sonnet when he said, quote, My grief lies onward and my joy behind. End quote. We talked about the difficulty making decisions, memory difficulties. There can be beliefs that you are responsible for the loss. You might have dreams, nightmares, thinking that others are watching you, thinking that you're different than everyone else. You might even have self-destructive thoughts. All of those things can be going on in the cognitive reactions. So, we've got emotional reactions and we've got cognitive reactions. And then we have physical reactions, right? The first of these, maybe the most obvious, is the crying. The crying. Voltaire, he told us that tears are the silent language of grief. And again, William, Spe- and again, William Shakespeare to weep is to make less the depth of grief. Washington Irving, he tells, he tells us that, quote, there is a sacredness in tears. They are not the mark of weakness, but of power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues they're the messengers of overwhelming grief, of deep contrition, and of unspeakable love. End quote. And then finally, J.R.R. Tolkien, he knew that we need to allow ourselves to feel the grief, to feel the sadness. And in one particularly poignant passage, At the end of the return of the king, Frodo is about to sail away forever, leaving his friends behind. And what does Gandalf say? Gandalf says this. Well, here at last, dear friends, on the shores of the sea comes the end of our fellowship in Middle-earth. Go in peace. I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. End quote crying. And there is a physiological release that comes from crying. It can help us so much sometimes. Well, what other physical reactions? Sleeping changes, appetite changes, weight gain or weight loss, tiredness. Sometimes you see these deep sighs, the aches and pains, feeling weak, restlessness. That's a really common one. And the, and the flip side of it, lethargy. There's also muscle tension. You might have a pounding heart, tachycardia, headaches, stomach aches, nausea, dizziness, shortness of breath, being easily shaken by certain sights and sounds, particularly the ones that remind you in some way of the loss. And we often have weakened immune systems when we're grieving, more susceptible to colds, to infections, all of those things, the physical reactions that the experts note are common in the grieving process. Well, what about spiritual reactions? And I was really glad to see this because none of these particular sources, none of these sources were particularly spiritual or religious, but they bring up the spiritual reaction. So I was very gratified to see that whole dimension at least being mentioned, at least being addressed in some way, right? Feeling lost and empty, feeling abandoned or punished by God, questioning the reasons to go on living, feeling like you don't belong, anger with God, questioning your religious beliefs, right? Disruption in the plan of life. That's one I added in because so often people no longer pray in the same way. They no longer engage in their spiritual practices in the same way. There may be a need for forgiveness and there may be finding hope in prayer or spiritual beliefs. I'm reminded of John fourteen eighteen. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I'm reminded of Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There will no longer be any mourning, crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so many people, if they embrace this process of grief in a healthy way, what do they find? They find a deeper sense of compassion, a deeper sense of connection to others. And it's not just Catholics. For example, here's what Rumi says, quote, Grief can be the garden of compassion. If you keep your heart open through everything, your pain can become your greatest ally in your life's search For love and wisdom, end quote. All of those, the spiritual reactions. So we have the emotional reactions, the cognitive reactions, the physical reactions, and the spiritual reactions. What does that leave? That leaves the behavioral reactions. These also include the social interactions. Trying to stay constantly active, overachieving, underachieving, changes in work performance, being more clumsy blaming others, not caring about things, wanting to sort of drop out of society and isolate, spending more time alone, dropping out of social activities. And this is where there's a, a really interesting quote by Gail Sheehy, who says, quote, people in grief need someone to walk with them without judging them. End quote. So, so important. People in grief, though, they may... Pull away from others' attempts to touch them, to comfort them, to be present with them. We need to be able to understand that. Eric Fromm said, quote, to spare oneself from grief at all costs can be achieved only at the price of total detachment, which excludes the ability to experience happiness. I want to share with you this poem called My Mask published by Ellie Naza in June of 2011. Every morning, I wake up and put on a mask. The mask makes everything seem all right, but they don't know I cry at night. The nightmares just won't go away. If only I knew it was your last day. For six years, I felt this pain. The feeling just won't go away. Everyone thinks I've dealt with your death the best, but without this mask, I'd be a mess. Some people, they want more attention and affection. They reach out, they approach rather than avoid. They seek approval, they seek reassurance from others. Others, on the other hand, distrust. They detach. Some get aggressive, some start getting argumentative. Some start to channel the intensity of their internal experience into music, writing, or other art forms, and some deepen relationships. There's this great quote from Alphonse de Lamartine who says, grief knits two hearts in closer bonds than happiness ever can, and common sufferings are far stronger links than common joys. I'm just going to invite you to think about that. Common sufferings are far stronger links than common joys. Hillary Stanton Zunin said this, The risk of love is loss, and the price of loss is grief. But the pain of grief is only a shadow when compared with the pain of never risking love. End quote. So, that's the fifth. That's the behavioral reactions. We've got the emotional reactions. We've got the cognitive reactions. We've got the physical reactions, the spiritual reactions, the behavioral reactions. Those are the compendium of signs, of signals that someone's going through the process of grieving. But there are some weaknesses to these models. We've spent today getting reacquainted with what the prevailing models of grief can tell us. We know that they have descriptive power. But they are merely descriptive. They are not proscriptive. They don't really inform us about how to be with a particular person, a specific person who's going through grieving. They're just telling us this may be some of the things they experience. They might help us to recognize grief when it's present. But even then, the signs of grief, the signals of grief are not necessarily specific just to grief. They can cover a whole lot of different experiences. If you go back through this whole list, they are not specific to grief. The other thing that these signs don't really get at are identity issues. The questions of who am I now? Who am I now that I'm no longer married, that I'm a widow or that I'm a widower I think that there's a much better way to approach grief, both inside ourselves and inside of others. This myth of a unified, homogenous, monolithic personality, that has been the basis of these stage models of grief. That has been the basis of these phase models of grief. And it's really limiting that myth of the unified homogenous monolithic personality has really compromised our ability to understand grief. So in the next episode, I'm going to bring in a whole new model of grief, one that's developed by Internal Family Systems therapist Derek Scott, who has done the best conceptual work on understanding grief and responding to grief that I have ever encountered in my professional life in the natural realm. We are going to get into that much more deeply. We're going to understand how different parts of ourselves experience grief. And we're going to go one step further beyond that even. And we're going to bring in the Catholic Foundation. And why? Why are we doing all of this? It is to increase our capacity to love. The price of loving is grieving. That's why. That's why. So thank you for being here with me. I really want to hear from you in our conversation hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. You can call me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. We had a great response in the last office hours. It was good to hear from so many of you. I know that some of you had trouble getting through. Leave me a voicemail. I will try to call you back. I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me that I be humble and small and childlike enough to love deeply, that I have the courage to love deeply, to tolerate the reality of grief in that loving. I'm going to ask for that, for prayers for that specific intention from you. I'm going to pray for that for you as well. And then a message To Catholic mental health professionals, work with me. Come join me in the interior therapist community at Souls and Hearts. Find out how you can join one of my therapist groups. They're starting up again in September. They are all about working on your human formation. They're informed by internal family systems therapy. They're grounded in the Catholic faith. Catholic graduate students and mental health professionals, find out all the details at soulsandhearts.com backslash I-T-C. ITC stands for the Interior Therapist Community. You can also email me with questions about the Interior Therapist Community at crisisatsoulsonhearts.com or call me on my cell, 317-567-9594. Find out how we can work together. Some, some of you some of you are already taking me up on that. We had a great Zoom informational meeting about these groups. It's now posted on our landing page, soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. Check that out if you are a Catholic mental health professional or graduate student. And if you're not, but you still want to get involved, I've got the Resilient Catholics community. You can join the waiting list for that. We're going to open it up again in a few months. Check that out at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. All right. And with that, we're going to invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots, pray for us St. John the Baptist pray for us